0: Good morning, Wow. Uh, if you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus chapter 16, uh, we continue our series, pick up again where we left off uh, in our series through the book of Leviticus and uh, it's my first time preaching without this uh, screen here and it's just something different, yeah, praise the Lord. All right, Leviticus chapter 16. All religions of the world are based on two ideas. Every man-made concept of God fundamentally depends on one of two ideas. First is the idea of God being distant. That God is greatly distant from us, removed from us. He is unknowable. He is abstract and impersonal, often thought of as the great unknown, and there's no way for us to fathom what God is, who He is, or have any kind of relationship with God. That's one idea, and a number of religions and man-made ideas of God take that shape. The other idea is that God is very near to us. In fact, He is so near to us that He becomes almost indistinguishable from us. So people will say things like, Oh, God is this feeling I get when I'm in the you know, winter breeze in Abu Dhabi. Or God is uh, you know, in the trees and in nature, in every grain of sand and in every drop of the ocean. He is the spirit of the air. So one idea is that God is distant, and the other is that God is near. And as with most man-made religious concepts, these opposite positions miss the mark. They are both distortions of the truth. Because the one true God, the God of the Bible who reveals himself to us in the Scriptures, is both infinitely distant and distinct from us and yet at the same time seeks to draw near to us and draw us near to him to live in personal relationship with him. But the question for us is how can mere mortals, sinful human beings like us live in the presence of a holy, awesome, infinite God? How can we draw near to the one who is infinitely above us, who is infinitely holy? How can we approach his holy throne and access his life-giving presence when we ourselves are covered with sin? Today's text is going to answer those questions. If you remember, the theme of Leviticus is how we can live in God's presence. And Leviticus seeks to show us that God Himself provides a way, opens a way, for sinners to be reconciled to Him, to live and find life in Him. And as we look at the Day of Atonement ceremony this morning, the goal is that we would not only feel contrition, sorrow for our sin, that we would also feel assurance of forgiveness, assurance of access to God's presence through Christ's perfect atonement. This morning, we come to the center of Leviticus, of the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 16. In fact, everything that we've seen so far flows into this chapter. Everything that we'll see after this flows out of this chapter. If you think of the book of Leviticus like a sandwich we're right now, right in the center of the sandwich, the meat in the middle. So We've seen the top slice of bread on one side. We looked at sacrifices and priesthood and the laws of cleanness and uncleanness. We've looked at the bottom slice of bread on the other side. We will look at is uh, the holiness laws and again the laws of feasts. That's the bottom slice of bread. Today, we are in the center, right where the meat is in the heart of the book, looking at the day of atonement ceremony, in which the high priest of Israel, on behalf of the people of God, enters into the holiest place in all the earth, the holiest place in the camp of Israel, into the immediate presence of God. Not only is this Chapter the center of the book of Leviticus. It's the center of the first five books of the Bible. With the books of Genesis and Exodus on one side, and the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy on the other side, this chapter shows us the climactic moment in the Old Testament so far. Because for the first time since Eden, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were sent out a human being is granted direct access and entry into the immediate presence of God. We're going to go through this ritual, the Day of Atonement, by looking at five key characters, all right? Kids, you can take notes, and afterwards you can discuss with mommy and daddy who the five characters are in Leviticus 16. Five characters in the Day of Atonement ceremony. The first character, no surprises here, is God. God. Look at verses 1 to 3. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. The text begins once again with God speaking. The Lord speaks. He takes the initiative. He reveals the way. And there's a call back here to Leviticus chapter 10. If you remember, in chapter 10, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, on the great day of celebration when the priests were ordained and and God's presence entered the tabernacle, they sought to approach God on their own initiative, according to their own imagination, inventing their own idea of worship, and they sought to draw near. And they were struck dead. And there's an emphasis here on the danger of drawing near in your own way, at your own time, according to your own initiative. Notice again and again the text emphasizes death. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near before the Lord and died. And then the Lord speaks and says, Aaron is not to come at any time into the holy place so that, at the end, there in the middle of verse 2, so that he may not die. Coming into into the presence of God is not a light thing. God is distinct from us, dear friends. He is distinct from us and distant from us first because He is the Creator and we are creation. We are mere creatures made from dust, from the dust of the earth. And that itself puts God at a great distance far above us as king, as ruler, as authority, as Lord. And not only that, the Lord is infinitely holy. He is blazing in his purity. He is awesome in his majesty. And we are fallen, guilty, sinful, Thoroughly unworthy, unfit to stand in his presence. And yet today we see God take the initiative, make a way for atonement for sin and entry into his presence. And to properly understand what God is revealing here in this chapter, we must understand again where we are in God's story. If, if you downloaded the bulletin for today, I didn't give you an outline, but I've given you in diagrammatic representation everything that this chapter says. So if you don't have that right now, it's all right. You can go back home and look at it. It'll be a refresher for you. And it helps us understand the flow of the Bible story. The, the storyline of Scripture, the Bible begins in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, in a beautiful garden paradise where God created Adam and Eve and placed them there with life and joy, living in fellowship, uninterrupted fellowship, freedom, access to his presence. God himself dwelled in the garden. But Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God's command, rebelled against their creator and brought guilt upon themselves and upon all of us. Adam, acting as our representative, failed so that he is a fallen creature now and all of us fallen with him. All of us come into this world guilty, stained with sin, shamed because of our sin. And Adam and Eve, ashamed in their sin, are banished from God's presence, sent out, exiled, And if you know the direction in which they're exiled, they're exiled in the direction of the east. They are sent to the east. And the rest of the Bible is the story of God making a way, making provision for his people to live in fellowship with him once again. For sinful human beings to live in his presence one more time. God enters into a special relationship with a particular people as he unfolds his plan. He rescues these people from Egypt. He brings them to himself. And then as you read the book of Exodus, you'll see several chapters of specific instructions given for the construction of a sanctuary, a a tabernacle in which God himself will dwell in the midst of his people. And this tabernacle has three sections. There's a courtyard where offerings are made on an altar. There's a holy place where only the priests were allowed to enter. And then there's the innermost section called the holy of holies, or the most holy place, where there was this box called the Ark of the Covenant in which God's law was placed. And it is in this section that God resides, that God himself would appear in all his glory and power and majesty, that God would dwell in the midst of his people And no one could enter there, except one man, once a year. And there was a thick veil separating the people from this compartment. Even as this tabernacle's construction was completed at the end of the book of Exodus, we are told, Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So even the leader of God's people, even the main guy who's been mediating God's law to the people, he is not able to enter into God's presence. I've taught before, and you know we could do a whole one-hour Bible study on this, that the tabernacle itself was meant to correspond to the Garden of Eden. It's like a mini model of the Garden of Eden. And I can even show you two evidences of that this morning. First is that God dwells in the tabernacle. And the word used to describe God's dwelling there is a very specific word. And that word appears elsewhere in the Bible when it says God walked to and fro in the Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking to and fro. God's presence dwells in the tabernacle in the most holy place, just like he dwelled in Eden. There are numerous other correspondences we can look at, the imagery of trees and all of this in the tabernacle, just like a garden. But one very specific item that I want you to notice, when God drove out Adam and Eve, I told you He drove them out towards the east, that direction is significant, what did He place at the entryway to the garden? Genesis chapter 3 Verse 24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, sometimes we think of cherubim or cherubs or whatever it is in terms of these cute little babies with wings. That's not what this is. This is a fearsome creature, a fearsome angelic being guarding the way to God's presence with a flaming sword. In the tabernacle, on the veil that separates people from the most holy place, what do you see imprinted on that veil? Cherubim. And as you enter the most holy place, what is it that is right on top of the ark, sculpted, bowed down? Cherubim. So there's this correspondence, the cherubim that guards The way to the tree of life, to the immediate presence of God, to the Garden of Eden. Now there's a cherubim, there are cherubim guarding the way to the most holy place, which is the New Eden. There is no easy access. You cannot just enter. And Nadab and Abihu tried, and you can ask them what happened. They died. How would access be granted? How can anyone enter? that's where this special day in Leviticus 16 comes into the picture. The Lord speaks. He reveals the way according to His Word, not by human initiative, not by human imagination, but by God's instruction. Access into the presence of God is provided at a specific time in a specific way by atonement. That's an important term, atonement. What do we mean by atonement? Well, atonement is the process of reconciliation, of being made right with God through His provision of substitutionary blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. The term in English even has the root, it comes from the idea of being at one, at one meant Atonement makes us at one with God again. So I want to ask you, even as we think about the first character in the Day of Atonement drama, what's your view of God? Does your view conform to the biblical presentation of who He is, a holy God of all majesty, awesome in His glory and power? Do you treat God lightly or casually have you maybe trivialized God in your mind? Sometimes people talk about, you know, you have to dress up well to come to church because you're going to God's presence. God doesn't care so much about your attire. He cares about your attitude. Do you think of him or seek to approach him according to your own way in imagination or ideas rather than according to his word? Do you recognize who we're dealing with when we speak of God? He is the Lord of all, and he's our first character in the Day of Atonement drama. Next, we look at our second character, the high priest. Our second character is the high priest. Look at verses 3 to 4. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with the bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. So here we see the high priest who was the leader and representative of God's people. We've seen before the high priest was to function as a sort of mediator between God and the people, standing on behalf of God to the people, and then acting as the representative on behalf of the people before God. And here we see that he has special clothes for this unique day and ceremony, different from the regular attire that Aaron was to wear. And these special clothes Mark the unique nature of this occasion. He's just wearing four plain, simple pieces of cloth. Four white pieces of linen, as plain as can be. Normally, he would wear beautiful, colored, dazzling garments, looking royal like a king. But on the Day of Atonement, he looks more like a slave. When he represents God to the people, he comes out looking royal. When he's representing the people before God, in the presence of God, he goes in like a servant as one Commentator says, among his fellow men, his dignity as the great mediator between man and God is unsurpassed, and his splendid clothes draw attention to the glory of his office. But in the presence of God, even the high priest is stripped of all honor. He becomes simply the servant of the king of kings, whose true status is portrayed in the simplicity of his dress. And Aaron was to go through ritual washings, he was to bathe himself and be clean symbolizing the need for purity to enter God's presence. And he was recognized as a sinful man representing sinful men and women. A weak and mortal man representing mortal human beings. A creature of the dust standing on behalf of other creatures made of dust That's why first he had to offer a sin offering for himself for his own sins. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. As Aaron went in he had to present this bull first as a sin offering for himself. Verses 11 to 14, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Notice the emphasis there on Aaron needing atonement for himself because he's a sinful man. And even when he finally entered into the presence of God, when he came face to face with God's glory in the most holy place, there was danger. Verse 12, he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So he was supposed to create this fog inside and all of this smoke of the fire of the incense was to veil him. Prevent him from looking on God directly because otherwise there would be immediate death. A lowly creature of dust entering into the presence of Almighty God, atonement first for himself, incense so that he might not die by looking upon the glory of God directly. It would be like a mosquito caught in a nuclear blast to gaze upon God's glory. That's our second character in the Day of Atonement ritual, the high priest. The third and fourth characters in this ritual, in this drama, are closely related, almost like twins. And they have a complementary and yet contrasting function. Look at verses 5 to 10. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel, this is Aaron taking from the congregation... Two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel... And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So there are these two goats. We'll call them goat number one and goat number two. Or more appropriately, the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. And the sacrificial goat, goat number one, is character three. Both goats were brought before the Lord. And the Lord alone would determine the fate of each. Ancient Jewish texts say that lots were put into an urn and then picked out by the high priest. And the lots would indicate which goat was going to function as the sacrificial goat, which is goat number one. That's the one we're going to talk about first, the sacrificial goat. This is the goat that would be put to death And its blood shed as a sin offering, making purification for sins. Look at verses 15 to 19. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, Because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do so for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. This goat was put to death, and its blood poured out and used for purification, to propitiate the wrath of God, And to bring cleansing for the people's sins. Why is blood so important? Why are they using blood in this way? Why was the high priest to collect this blood and and take it and, and manipulate it in these ways, sprinkling it and doing all of this? Well, Blood signifies that a death has taken place. That the penalty for sin has been paid think of hebrews 9:22 which our sister bell read this morning indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins blood is like a detergent like a cleansing agent and it tells us here that the blood of this goat would bring cleansing and purification For all of the people's sins, all of their uncleannesses, both ritual uncleanness and moral uncleanness, would be cleansed, would be purged, would be washed away on this day. Cleansing not just for the congregation of the people, but also for the place. This was a cleansing for the entire sanctuary. Sin has a defiling and polluting effect, not only on our very being, on our person, but also on the environment that surrounds us, where we are. The earth is defiled by our sins. And this special ceremony, the day of atonement, was a special day of deep cleansing and cleaning. You might ask, oh, what about all the other sacrifices? Didn't they offer purification sacrifices, guilt offerings, and all of that every day? Well, yes, those were an ongoing Acts of purification, but there needed to be once a year this comprehensive cleansing. I went to the dentist last week. I always hate going to the dentist. I'm sorry if you're a dentist, but I, you know, I have to get my teeth cleaned. They say twice a year. Some of us go once a year, and you ask, well, don't you brush your teeth? Yes, I do. I brush my teeth twice a day, morning and evening. But you still need to go in because. There's an accumulation that needs a deep cleansing. But think about houses where we clean regularly, but you know that there ever so often comes this time when it's time to really, really clean, clean house. That's what the Day of Atonement was. A sanitization for the people and the place. You know, when we leave this hall, they come in and spray everything down and sanitize it. Here, sanitization for the sanctuary from the pollution of the people's sins. Remember, the wages of sin is death. And this goat is acting as a substitutionary sacrifice, dying to turn away God's judgment, providing purification and cleansing for God's people and God's place, and providing entry, access into the presence of God for the high priest. Think again about the story of the Bible. Adam and Eve were exiled out of God's presence towards the east. Here, Aaron, the high priest, the representative of God's people, with blood for his own sin and the blood of this sacrificial goat, is entering into God's presence and the direction, the orientation of the tabernacle, brothers and sisters, was always from east to west So Aaron is entering in this direction, moving westward, re-entry into Eden, into God's presence, into the Holy of Holies. What was lost in the garden is regained just for a moment, just once a year, just for one man as the people's representative, yet that one man is entering into the presence of God through sacrifice. That's what the blood of this first goat, the sacrificial goat, provides. Cleansing and access, entry into the presence of God. And now we will see the role of the other goat. Goat number two, commonly called the scapegoat. Scapegoat. Look again at verses 8 to 10. Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. What in the world is the meaning of Azazel? Well, I'm sorry to tell you that there are as many interpretations as there are interpreters of this phrase. So some people argue that this is a rare Hebrew word which means complete destruction some people argue that Azazel was the name of a rocky cliff or place. Some people argue that Azazel simply means sent away. Right? This is a go-to, sent away. And the most common interpretation is that Azazel was another name for Satan. Azazel was the name of a demon. And the wilderness is thought to be the place where demons dwell. Well, whatever interpretation you take, you'll see that the ultimate meaning and point of this goat is the same. And you'll see that from verses 20 to 22 by understanding what happens. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness so this goat is a scapegoat because the term scapegoat refers to it bearing all the sins of the people all of them and carrying those sins far away being sent out out in the, into the desert it were like as if we brought a goat here this morning, and then you know confess on it all the sins of ECC, and then we have a guy who's ready, pastoral assistant JP, and say, JP, get this goat out of this place, and he grabs the goat, puts it in the car, and drives all the way to Fujaira, and leaves it somewhere in the rocky cliffs, or all the way out to the desert and the Morib dune, and leaves it over there, out in the wilderness where it dies. If indeed, Azazel refers to the name of a demon, what God is doing here is God is sending the people's sins back to their source. Return to sender. Go back. Sending the sins where they belong. And and notice, what direction does this goat go? In what direction does this scapegoat go? Just like Adam and Eve sent out of the garden... In an eastward direction, when they were exiled out of Eden, this goat is exiled, banished, sent out towards the east. Towards the east. To a remote area. Far away. In the wilderness, into the realm of death. God is removing his people's sins as far as the east is from the west and we see here that the day of atonement ceremony covers the entire geography of the people of Israel of creation from the most holy place in the very presence of God all the way out to the far-off wilderness where the goat is exiled and where it dies all of this is dealt with on the day of atonement And these goats together now are displaying a comprehensive atonement once per year. Together they provide forgiveness of sins. Entry into God's presence. And the removal of sins far away from the presence of God and his people. And then Aaron closes out this special day by having a bath again. Changing his clothes. And offering two more rams as burnt offerings on the altar. One for himself and the people. The slate has been wiped clean at least for one more year. What was the role of the congregation in all this? Look at verses 29 to 31. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. The congregation were to afflict themselves. This special day was marked by sorrow, fasting, prayer, solemnity, humbling of self. It was a day of mourning for sin. Recognizing that sin is not something light, it really creates a barrier between us and God. It is something serious. Recognizing, on the other hand, how abundantly gracious God has been to provide mercy and a way to be reconciled to him. That's a good word for us today, isn't it? Many of us uh, have grown accustomed to what's common in evangelical Christianity. Uh, the happy, clappy, jolly attitude that, we're, that we think we should always have. Happy, clappy Christianity. No room for confession of sin Humbling oneself for penitence, reflection, even mourning over our sin. Maybe you came in this morning and you're here and you thought, gosh, why are all the songs so mournful, so sorrowful? If that was your thought, I want to submit to you that sometimes it's good for us to have a sense of penitence and sorrow, to offer prayers of confession. It's healthy and good in the Christian life and in the church. And I want to ask you, friend, do you mourn over sin, your own sin, the reality of sin in this world? Even this morning, are there sins that you need to pause to consider and confess and seek God's forgiveness? Well, the people of Israel were trained to do this once a year, year after year, and they receive atonement, cleansing, That was comprehensive and complete, but temporary. Temporary. Look at verses 32 to 34. The priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. This ceremony was to take place year after year, generation after generation, again and again, raising the question, why does this ritual keep being repeated? If sins were truly cleansed completely and comprehensively, why are we doing it again the following year? Again and again, why is there this reminder of sins and sinfulness? You see, all the sacrifices of Israel, of bulls and goats, and even the day of atonement could never ultimately pay for sin, could never ultimately cleanse our hearts. They function like a credit card. A temporary payment is made, but the debt keeps accumulating. And despite all of this repetition, again and again, still such limited and momentary access into the presence of God. Would there be something more? Could there be something more? And the answer is yes, because that something more is provided by the fifth character in the day of atonement ceremony, because he completes and fulfills the story. You see, the day of atonement never brought complete atonement with God. God instituted it so that through it he could teach his people, train his people, prepare his people for the true And final and real day of atonement when a greater priest would offer a greater and more perfect sacrifice that takes away sins forever and makes a permanent way into the presence of God. The true and final day of atonement took place, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago on Good Friday when the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself up as a sacrifice for us on the cross When the Lord Jesus Christ played the role of all key characters in the day of atonement ritual. The first character we saw was God. Jesus is God, the Son. Fully and eternally God. God provides the way. He provides the solution. He opens the way for us to live in his presence through his own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus as God, the Son took on human flesh to make atonement, to take away our sin and to lead us into God's presence. Jesus is the true and better high priest. Like Aaron, he was appointed by God to be mediator. Like Aaron, he was appointed to make atonement. Like Aaron, he was fully human like us, yet without sin you see jesus is far greater and far better than adam hebrews chapter 7 verses 26 to 7 27 It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Aaron was a sinful man representing sinful human beings. Jesus is the spotless son of God who represents us being perfectly man and perfectly God. Aaron entered into an earthly sanctuary, an earthly place momentarily. Just once a year, Jesus enters into heaven, risen and reigning once for all. Aaron offers sacrifices. The high priest offers sacrifices again and again, every day, one after another, year after year. Jesus offered one perfect sacrifice once for all that takes away sin forever. Jesus, like the sacrificial goat, is the perfect sacrifice who cleanses us from sin. Like the sacrificial goat, Jesus poured out his blood. Jesus died as a substitute for all who will trust him. His blood grants access, not temporarily into an earthly tabernacle, but permanently into the presence of God. Mark chapter 15, verses 37. And 38. This is on the cross when Jesus was dying. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom. This is an act of God tearing the veil, opening the way. Think of Hebrews again chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. The cleansing that Jesus provides from sin is once for all, all sins washed away. The entry that Jesus provides is directly through the veil into God's presence, and that veil has been torn, opening the way forever for you And me. Jesus is God himself. Jesus is the true and better high priest. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Fulfilling the role of the sacrificial goat. And Jesus, like the scapegoat. Like the scapegoat. Bore the sins of his people. And died outside the camp. All our sins. Laid on him. Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray; we have turned one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He carried our sins far away. He experienced the darkness of exile and forsakenness in the far place on the cross as he absorbed the wrath of God for sinners hebrews thirteen twelve so Jesus also suffered. Outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And now through Jesus, the son of God, our perfect priest, our perfect sacrifice, our substitute, our scapegoat. Brothers and sisters, dear friends, the veil is torn. The way is opened for sins to be forgiven once for all for consciences to be cleansed completely, comprehensively, for access into God's presence now and forever. And I want to speak to you this morning, if you're here, your non-Christian friend, your children, if you don't know Jesus, that load of sins that you carry That uncleanness within that never leaves. The guilt that you cannot be rid of. You can be free from it. You come to Jesus today. Have him as as your sacrificial goat. By his blood you have forgiveness and fellowship with God. Have him as your scapegoat who bears away your sins. Away from the presence of God on the cross. Or one day, like the scapegoat, you will experience eternal exile and banishment from God's presence. Carrying your own sins into the eternal wilderness and judgment of hell. But today is the day to draw near. Today is the day to experience perfect forgiveness and cleansing. The author of Hebrews gives us three applications from the day of atonement that Christ fulfills. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, notice three times the author says, let us. This is the significance of what Jesus has done, of the tearing of the veil. First, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the application. The author gives it to us. This is the meaning of the day of atonement for us. This is the meaning of the veil being torn. First, let us draw near. Brothers and sisters, because of the atonement that Jesus has accomplished, we are invited, we are called to draw near. All of your sins have been banished from God's sight. All of them. What is the sin that is haunting you, dear friend? What is that ghost of guilt That goes from room to room in your heart. Haunting you and keeping you up at night. What is that stain that keeps you feeling unworthy. To come into the presence of God. I want to invite you. Draw near. Come ye sinners heavy laden. Weak and wounded. Sick and sore. Jesus stands ready to save you. Children I want to call you. Draw near. Jesus welcomes little children into his arms. First, let us draw near. Second, let us hold the confession of our hope without wavering. If there's anything that's caused our confession of hope to waver, it's this pandemic, isn't it? Suffering causes us to waver. And this morning, we are called again to resolve again, commit ourselves again, afresh in faith to God. Don't let your hope go up and down and Waiver based on the COVID case count. Jesus has provided complete covering. Atonement for sin. Forgiveness. Hold fast. The third let us. Believe it or not. The veil has been torn. So what are you going to do? Gather with the church. I'm not saying that. The author of Hebrews says that. Verses 24 and 25. Remember, the context is the veil has been torn. Jesus has made a new and living way. What does he say? Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Brothers and sisters, you want to experience God's presence in the holy of holies? You want to experience a taste of heaven and earth? You want to experience fellowship with God as in Eden once again? God's presence in all his fullness and glory? Guess where it's at? Preeminently, we experience this. Most fully, most completely, most comprehensively in gathered worship. The presence of our God behind the veil. Yes, individually in our daily lives. But more than ever, right here. And guess what? It, It can't be transmitted online. The holy of holies and presence of God among his people in worship. This encounter, this experience, it can't be experienced in Pixels on a screen. The veil has been torn. So don't neglect to meet together and experience this great presence. You see, what we're experiencing right here, the presence of God in our midst, is preparation for one day when all of creation will be cleansed and all of it will be the holy of holies and we will dwell with him forever. Revelation 21 verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will dwell with them, with us, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Amen.